Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. Good morning, Four Persons Blog Talk Radio Show fans. This is the Catholic Ken Apologetic Show. This is me, your host, Ken Litchfield. We have a great show planned for you today. We will be discussing the rapture. If you have any questions on this topic, feel free to call me at 515-602-9655. And if you'd like a copy of today's show notes, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com. I'm also available to come and speak at your parish on this or many other topics. You can contact me at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. So let's get started. The uh, topic of the rapture is what actually got me started in Catholic apologetics. My son introduced me to the Left Behind books, and so I read them and got more curious about the rapture. Uh, Fortunately, Steve Ray, uh, no, Scott Hahn and Tim Staples saved me from falling into the rapture trap. But that got me into studying the Catholic faith and the church fathers. And I learned from many Protestant to Catholic converts about the Catholic faith, and then I started answering questions about the Catholic faith online. So that's how I became a apologist, through the questions about the rapture. So many Christians believe in the rapture. Some believe that the Bible says that there will be a pre-tribulation rapture. Some people say that the Bible says that there will be a mid-tribulation rapture. And some people say the Bible says there will be a post-tribulation rapture. Some say that there will be all three. And all these interpretations come from some verses in the Bible and some person's understanding of them. 
but some churches don't teach the doctrine of the rapture. All the churches started before 1800 don't teach the rapture. These churches include the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, the Lutheran Church, Reform and Presbyterian Churches, the Anglican, Episcopal, Methodist, and Wesleyan Churches, the Quakers, the Church of Christ, and the Amish. Some modern evangelical Bible churches teach that you are saved by confessing Jesus as your Savior. Then you are guaranteed to go to heaven, and you can develop your own personal relationship with Jesus on your terms. Some also teach that the rapture will take all the believers away before anything really bad happens. It is a great promotional idea that has brought many people into their churches. And why wouldn't you want to enjoy in a church like that that guarantees that you're guaranteed to go to heaven and nothing bad will happen to you? However, Jesus does tell us to take up our cross daily. <laughs> but they don't teach that in those kind of churches. The reason so many Protestant churches don't teach the rapture doctrine is because the rapture doctrine was invented in the 1830s by a man named John Nelson Darby, who was inspired by the private fever-induced revelations of a 16-year-old girl named Margaret MacDonald. Darby's interpretation of the Bible was promoted through the Moody Bible Institute, the Schofield Study Bible, and Dallas Theological Seminary. John Walvoord is considered the dean of the pre-tribulation rapture at Dallas Theological Seminary. In his book, he writes, the early church did not teach 20th century pre-tribulationalism. He also writes that the early church teaching can only be described as post-tribulational, and the early church fathers were post-tribulational. So now we know that the doctrine of the rapture is a new teaching in Christianity. However, a lot of people don't know enough Christian history to know that this is something new started in the early 1800s. Protestants that believe in the pre-tribulation rapture point to this part of the Bible as the foundation of their belief. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where it says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Pre-tribulation rapture-believing Protestants support this catching away of the believers with verses from Matthew chapter 24, Luke 17, and Luke 17, where it says, one will be taken and one will be left. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 gives us a good foundation on what will happen when Jesus returns. Starting at verse 50, what I am saying, brothers and sisters, is that this flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable inherit the imp I'm sorry, nor does the perishable imperishable. Verse 51 says, listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, 
at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must be must put on immortality. Then this perishable body when this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Now here's a little more context from First Thessalonians chapter 4 where it says, the coming of the Lord, starting at verse 13, but we would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, though Jesus, God, will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, cry of command, with the archangel's call and the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Nowhere does this chapter say that Jesus returns to heaven after catching up the faithful living and the dead. Also, the loud trumpets and people rising from the grave will tell us that Jesus' second coming is here. It will not be a mysterious disappearance of believers, as is typically taught in the pre-tribulation rapture theology. Now let's have a look at Matthew chapter 24 that supposedly supports this rapture idea. Starting at verse 27, it says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the body is, there the vultures will be gathered together. The coming of the Son of Man immediately after the tribulation of those days kind of debunks that pre-tribulation rapture right there. So immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And then it moves on to the topic of the necessity of watchfulness. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As were the days of Noah, 
so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and swept them all away. So will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, and one is taken and one is left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, and one is taken and one is left. Watch therefore, for you do not know on what day of the Lord your, what day the Lord is coming. But before this, that is, if the householder had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have watched and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, always be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. From this we learn that after the tribulation, the coming of the Son of Man will be accompanied by lightning, the earth shaking, and the sun and the moon will be darkened. We also see that the bad people, we get a little more clarification in Luke chapter 17, starting at verse 24. For the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other. So will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married, they were given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, and they built. On the day, of, on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and brimstone rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let him who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And otherwise, let him who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to gain his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And Jesus said to them, Where the body is, there the vultures will be gathered. The coming of the Son of Man will be accompanied by lightning flashes, thunder, and earth shaking. It will be like the days of Noah and Lot where the bad people are taken away in the flood or the destruction of Sodom, and the good people were left behind in the ark or as Lot and his family. It also provides clarification where the people taken away go to. As Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 17, the Bad people are taken, the vultures gather. They're not taken to heaven. 
Jesus tells us about the second coming in John chapter 6, starting at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. In chapter 11, it says, starting at verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. In John chapter 12, it tells us, starting at verse 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has a judge. The word that I have spoken will be his judge on the last day. These chapters tell us that Jesus will rise, raise up and judge us on the last day. The last day is when Jesus returns to the earth. Now, some Protestants will point to, will say that the Bible says that we are not appointed to wrath, but it does say that we are not, let me try that again. The Bible says that we are not appointed to wrath, but it doesn't say that we are not appointed to tribulation, right? So wrath is the punishment by God. Tribulation is testing by God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul says, that we have to endure tribulation. In John chapter 16, it says, I have told you this, I've said this to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. In Matthew chapter 24, it says, we will have to endure the great tribulation. In Acts chapter 14, verse 22, it says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So this idea of the pre-tribulation rapture is thoroughly debunked if you actually read the Bible, where it says that we will have to endure tribulation. In Revelation chapter 1, it says that when Jesus comes back, we will be coming in the clouds, or he will be coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, including those who pierced him. All believers and non-believers will see Jesus when he returns. Only those that are fully holy will enter heaven, according to Revelation chapter 20 and 21. The book of Revelation covers the events from the point where Satan was expelled from heaven to the destruction of the first Jerusalem to the construction of the new Jerusalem. However, when you look at the book of Revelation as it relates to the Mass, you see that the, the readings of the letters in the first four chapters corresponds to the liturgy of the Word the four Bible readings in the Mass. Then John is caught up to heaven for the heavenly Eucharistic liturgy. This is where the wedding supper of the Lamb is, where Jesus and his church, his bride, are permanently united his second coming.
John chapter 6 tells us that Jesus will raise us up on the last day. John chapter 12 tells us that the final judgment is at the last day. First Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us there will be a loud trumpet call and the faithful dead and living will be caught up in the air to meet Jesus as he comes down to earth. Matthew chapter 24 and chapter, Luke chapter 20, 17 tell us that Jesus was only coming back once on the last day, not one and a half times. Some of the early church fathers taught the rapture doctrine. Some rapture believers refer to some of these early church father writings to support their doctrine. When read with a rapture doctrine mindset, they can be interpreted to support the rapture. When these writings are read in context of all the author's writings and the struggles of the Catholic Church in the first 300 years, they are easily interpreted as referring to the struggles of the church in their times. To interpret them as referring to the rapture would also put the rapture in their times as well, not ours. Knowing the big picture keeps a person from seeing the rapture in these few sentences of the many that these Catholic Christians wrote. All Catholic Christians referred to here also taught the same Catholic understanding of baptismal regeneration, the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, the primacy of the church in Rome, and the sinlessness of Mary as the new Eve. None of the Protestant churches of the first 300 years None of the Protestant churches of the first 300 years after 1520 taught the doctrine of the rapture. So you can kind of say that Protestantism started in 1520 with Martin Luther's break from the Catholic Church. But the Protestants didn't start teaching the doctrine of the rapture until 300 years later in, say, 1825 at the earliest when John Darby invented the idea. So here's a writing from a early Christ, Catholic Christian named Justin Martyr, who wrote around 150 AD in his dialogue with Trifo, who was a Jewish rabbi. In chapter 80, Trifo writes, but tell me, do you really admit that this place, Jerusalem, shall be rebuilt and you expect your people to be gathered together and made joyful with Christ and the patriarchs and the prophets, both the men of our nation and other proselytes who have joined them before your Christ came? And Justin responds to him, Justin uh, writes, I am not so miserable a fellow, Trifo, as to say one thing and think another. 
I admitted to you formally that I and many others are of this opinion and believe that such will take place as you assuredly are aware. On the other hand, I signified to you that many who belong to the pure and pious faith are true Christians think otherwise, but I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead and a thousand years in Jerusalem, which will then be built, adorned, and enlarged, as the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah and others declare. So here Justin is speaking about the new heavenly kingdom Jesus will bring at his second coming. Justin does not specifically mention a new temple, just a new city. The thousand-year reign is the new everlasting kingdom of God here on earth. For Jews, the number 10 was the number of completion. So if you multiply 10 by 10 by 10, which equals 1,000, that is to show that it is complete. And 10 times 10 times 10 shows that it is thoroughly complete. Because in Jewish language, they didn't have words like better, good, better, or best. They just repeated the same word over and over. So 10 being the number of completion would be repeated three times to show really completeness. Irenaeus is another early Christian writer that writes around 180 AD. In his book, Against Heresies, Book 5, Chapter 29, Paragraph 1, he writes, And therefore, when in the end the church shall be suddenly caught up from this, it is said, There shall be tribulation such has not been since the beginning, neither shall be, for this is the last contest of the righteous, in which when they overcome, they are crowned with incorruption. A rapture believer might take this to say that Christians will be caught up before the tribulation. First Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us that the believers will be caught up to meet Jesus as he returns to establish his new kingdom here on earth. Neither First Thessalonians chapter 4 nor Irenaeus tell us that these believers are caught up to heaven while the rest endure tribulation on earth. The great tribulation will be the last contest for the righteous, and they will need to be on earth to endure it to show their faithfulness. Therefore, they won't be caught up until after the tribulation. On another early Christian writer is named Cyprian, and he writes in in his writing treaties treatises by Cyprian. He writes, "We who see that terrible things have begun and know that." still more terrible things are imminent, may regard it as the greatest advantage to depart from it as quickly as possible. Do you not give God thanks? Do you not congratulate yourself that by an early departure you are taken away and delivered from the shipwrecks and disasters that are imminent? 
Let us greet the day that assigns each of us to his own home, which snatches us hence and sets us free from the snares of the world and restores us to paradise and the kingdom. Cyprian says here that the terrible times, the tribulation, have begun and will get worse soon. If these sentences refer to the rapture, then it has already happened in his time. This great advantage, the great advantage of departing quickly is when the Christians were martyred without torture, not because they got snatched away. There were many waves of persecution during the Roman Empire, which could appear as the shipwrecks coming soon, which again says, then not now. These sentences do not refer to the rapture since Cyprian says, let us greet the day which assigns each of us his own home. Now this can also refer to the individual's death when they would go to the paradise of the kingdom, heaven. And you have to start with a, a rapture mentality to read the rapture into these sentences. Cyprian is writing about the troubles of his time, not our time, or the time to come. He is offering encouragement to the Christians of his time who are suffering persecution. But he, his writings can also inspire us to suffer our persecution and tribulation. Uh, this is another writing from Cyprian on, in his writing about on the last times. And he writes, Or do you not believe unless you see with your eyes? See to it that this sentence is not fulfilled among you of the prophet who declares, Woe to those who desire to see the day of the Lord. For all the saints and the elect of God are gathered prior to the tribulation that is to come and are taken to the Lord, lest they see confusion that is to overwhelm the world because of our sins. And so, brothers, most dear to me, it is the eleventh hour, and the end of the world comes to the harvest. And the angels, armed and prepared, hold sickles in their hands, awaiting the empire of the Lord. And we think that the earth exists with blind infidelity, arriving at its downfall early. Commotions are brought forth, wars of diverse people and battles and incursions of the barbarians threaten, and our regions are to be desolated. And we neither become very much afraid of the report nor of the appearance, in the order that we may at last at least do penance, because they hurl fear at us, and we do not wish to be changed, least stand in our need of penance for our actions. Here again, Cyprian is writing about Christianity of his time. He refers to his time as the 11th hour. Wars with the barbarians and the end of the world, which would therefore have happened in his time, not ours. Cyprian encourages Christians to not ignore the chance to do penance before the end of the world. 
Again, you have to start with a rapture mindset to see the rapture in these sentences. Again, they actually refer to the events of Cyprian's time, not ours. The, when Cyprian lived, there were many barbarian tribes from Northern Europe that were starting to invade the Roman Empire and because it was a nicer environment to live in than the cold north. And unlike other uh, cultures that were incorporated, incorporated into the Roman Empire, these barbarians wanted to continue their unclean life uh, and didn't incorporate into the Roman Empire like so many other cultures did. So it seemed very terrible at the time of Cyprian writing this. And it really was a big change in the world of Christianity. So here's some information about early rapture teachers. The idea of the pre-tribulation rapture as it is taught today did not come up until John Nelson Darby in the 1800s, who invented dispensationalism, which led to his new interpretation of the Bible. Darby thought that God's salvation plan for the Jews was still in effect. Therefore, he had to invent a way for the Christians to be taken away from the earth so God could save the Jews again. In more recent times, three writings have been discovered to show a pre-tribulation rapture that was believed and taught by some earlier Christians, but the idea early Christian writers. In 1260, Gerard Sagarello founded the Apostolic Brethren after his application for membership to the Franciscan monks was rejected. At that time, the founding of new religious orders was strictly forbidden by the Pope and several church councils. Therefore, the church tried to abolish the apostolic brethren. In the 1300, their leader, Gerard, was arrested and subjected to an inquisition. So many Protestants like to point to the Catholic Church as only persecuting other Protestants with the Inquisition, but the Catholic Church also held Inquisitions for fellow Catholics. And our modern American court system is actually based on the Inquisitions, where if a person was accused of teaching heresy, they would be brought to a better jail than the secular jail um, in perhaps a Catholic church or other Catholic religious organization. And then that person would be allowed to make a list of people that would were his enemies and testimony from those people in his inquisition. Only other people could provide evidence to show that that person was a heretic. And then if a person was determined to have 
determined to have been teaching heresy, the Catholic Church would not just immediately turn him over to be executed by the civil government. They would actually try to teach the person correct theology. And only after that person refused to accept correct theology would they be turned over to the state. And the state would execute them not for having wrong religious views, but for being a traitor to the state because the authority of the state came from the church. So just like now in our current American court system, a person can be arrested for a crime, but evidence has to be brought before the court to show that the person actually committed the crime before they are sentence, sentenced. Now compare this to what Protestants would do when somebody was accused of being a witch or something like that. They would put them on a on trial by dunking them in water and if they if they survived the dunking then obviously they were a witch. Uh, because only a witch could survive the dunking. Now, if they died in the dunking, then obviously they were innocent, but now they're dead. Obviously, the Catholic method of presenting evidence and having judges determine the case is much better than trial by by peril. So after Gerard refused to accept the correct church teaching, he was turned over to the state for sentencing. And as I mentioned earlier, since citizens were required to hold the faith of the state, Gerard was burned at the stake for treason. Brother Dalcino who had been a member of the Apostolic Brethren for a number of years, took over leadership of the order around 1304. At one point under his leadership, the Apostolic Brethren had grown to about 4,000 members. The persecuted order under Dalcino's leadership withdrew to the mountains, mountainous areas of northern Italy near Novara and Vercelli. But the size of the order and their need for daily sustenance resulted in clashes with local authorities. In 1306, a bull was drawn up by Pope Clement V, and a crusade was launched against them. In 1307, over 400 members of the Apostolic Brethren were killed by armed forces with the authority of the Pope. Dulcino was also captured, mutilated, and burned at the stake for treason. Morgan Edwards discovered a statement by let me start again. Morgan Edwards discovered a statement by Pseudo Ephraim in seventeen forty four and later published them in seventeen eighty eight. Edwards claimed that this pseudo Ephraim writing wrote about his pre-tribulation rapture beliefs. The original writing was delivered by the church father Ephraim of Nisbus, but was published soon after in the name of Pseudo Ephraim. 
However, the fact that the apocalypse of Ephraim of Nisbis was replicated centuries later by pseudo-Ephraim has led to confusion about the identities of the two persons and the dating of the manuscript. In addressing the question of the authorship of the sermon, this article examines the political and religious milieu and mindset of Ephraim of Nisbis and pseudo-Ephraim, respectively, within late antiquity and the early Middle Ages. Now, this writing um, called pseudo-Ephraim uh, is rather long, and uh, I'd love to read it to you here, but it would take over an hour just to read that. But you can look it up and read it for yourself, and it very much parallels what is written in the book of Revelation which talks about Jesus' second coming. So here's a Catholic view on the end times. The Catholic Church and the Bible teach that Jesus can come back at any time, and we should always be prepared for his second coming. Jesus says no man knows the day or the hour, and that his return will be like a thief in the night, mentioned in Matthew chapter 24. This is why we always need to be, keep ourselves in a state of grace. One of the signs of Jesus' return is the rise of the Antichrist. There will be a large percentage of the Jews that will turn to Jesus and become Christians, or fulfilled Jews. Those anticipating Jesus' return may be caught up to meet him as he returns to earth to set up his kingdom. Then there will be the final judgment, where all our past deeds may be revealed. And we will see how they affected the rest of the world, as shown in Revelation chapter 20, where the book of life is read for each person. We will see God's justice for those that are headed to hell. We will also see our good deeds affect how our good deeds affected others, and how many times God has forgiven us for our sins. Everyone heading to heaven will be fully filled with grace, but some will have a greater capacity to be filled with grace based on their deeds in this life. Now, this is what the Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches about the end times in paragraphs 668, 682, or through 682, in paragraph 1021 and in paragraphs 1038 through 1041. So Jesus' second coming in brief, starting at paragraph 680. Christ the Lord already reigns through the church, but all the things of this world are not yet subjected to him. The triumph of Christ's kingdom will not come about until one last assault by the powers of evil. On Judgment Day at the end of the world, Christ will come in glory to achieve the definitive triumph of good over evil, which, like the wheat of the, and the tares, have grown up together in the course of history. When he comes at the end of time to judge the living and the dead, the glorious Christ will reveal the secret position of hearts and will render to each man according to his works and according to his acceptance or refusal of grace.
Now, death and judgment is covered starting in paragraph 1021 of the Catechism. Death puts an end to human life at the time open to either accepting or rejecting the divine grace manifested in Christ. The New Testament speaks of judgment primarily in its aspect of the final encounter with Christ in his second coming, but also repeatedly affirms that each will be rewarded immediately after death, in accordance with his works and faith. The parable of the poor man Lazarus and the words of Christ on the cross to the good thief, as well as other New Testament texts, speak of the final destiny of the soul, a destiny which can be different for some and for others. And in the judgment, in brief, is covered in paragraphs starting at, of the Catechism of the Catholic Church starting at paragraph 1051, every man receives his eternal recompense in his mortal soul, his immortal soul, from the moment of his death in a particular judgment by Christ, the judge of the living and the dead. We believe that the souls of all who die in Christ's grace are the people of God beyond death. On the day of the resurrection, death will be definitively conquered when these souls will be reunited with their bodies. That's when we get our immortal body. We believe that the multitude of those gathered around Jesus and Mary in paradise forms the church of heaven. In eternal blessedness, they see God as he is and where they are also to various degrees associated with the holy angels in the divine governance exercised by Christ in glory by interceding for us and helping our weakness by their fraternal concern. Those who die in God's grace and friendship imperfectly purified, although they are assured of their eternal salvation, undergo a purification after death so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. Because Revelation chapter 21 tells us that nothing unclean can enter heaven. There have been many failed predictions over the past 2,000 years about Jesus' second coming and the end of the world. In the first century, if the in the first century, Christians thought that Jesus was coming back before the Apostle John died. Two hundreds, the Montanists, taught that Jesus would return in that century. In the late three hundreds, Augustine wrote about how the 1,000 years of Christ's reign was the church age, which was currently happening here on earth. As I mentioned in Jewish literature, Ten is the number of fullness or completion. They would use the same word in multiples for emphasis. So 10 times 10 times 10 equals 1,000, which is fully complete. Just like in the Bible, it refers to God as holy, 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 because the Jews did not have a word for holiest. So they would just repeat it over and over. 
During the plagues of the Middle Ages, many people thought that they were signs of the second coming of Jesus. In the 1500s, Martin Luther and John Calvin taught that the Pope was the Antichrist and that Jesus was coming back soon. In the 1840s, William Miller taught his Millerite followers that the second coming was going to be in 1843 or 1844. In 1914, the Jehovah Witnesses taught that Jesus was coming back in their time. In 1971, Hal Lindsey published his book that predicted that Jesus would return in the 1970s. In 1983, the same guy, Hal Lindsey, published his book, Rapture Truth or Consequences. So after he failed in the 1970s, Hal Lindsey tried again in the 80s. Edward Wisemat published his book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988, with an expectation of Jesus' return around September 11th or 13th. When that prediction failed, he predicted the same event for 1989. In 1994, Harold Camping predicted the second coming of Jesus. Many people predicted the end of the world in the year 2000. Harold Camping promoted the second coming again for May 21, 2011, when he put up billboards saying, is this Judgment Day? And through his 55 radio stations and 6,000 billboards, he promoted this idea. Many people predicted the end of the world for 2012 based on the end of the Mayan calendar. John Denton predicted the second coming of Jesus for 2034 based on his calculation that God made his first covenant with Abraham in 1968 BC and Jesus' new covenant started in 33 or 34 AD. So Jesus' second company coming should be in 2034 to keep the two covenants of equal length. We shall see. If you'd like a good book on debunking the rapture, uh, my friend Paul Thigpen wrote a book called The Rapture Trap. This is a book right here. And in this book, he thoroughly debunks the rapture and shows people how not to fall into the rapture trap. There's many other books debunking the rapture. And so if you have a friend that believes in the rapture, the pre-tribulation rapture, I suggest you read those books, maybe share that book with that person, or you can help explain to that person why this pre-tribulation rapture idea is not true. There have been over 200 predictions uh, about the end of the world and starting from the very beginning, as I previously mentioned. And we can 
as I mentioned also, we should always expect that Jesus could be coming back at any day because we don't know the day or the hour. Um, if you send me an email, I'll send you my show notes for this. And I have like all 200 predictions listed out, but we don't have time to read them all today. But I will read a few that are potentially yet to come in our time. I guess I don't have that page. So I won't read that here today. But thanks for tuning in. I hope this helps you to better understand where the idea of the pre-tribulation rapture came from and where, why it's wrong and how you can help others get over this false idea of the pre-tribulation rapture. If you like a copy of today's show notes or have a follow-up question, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com or look me up on Facebook. And the Catholic Ken is with a K, and it's at the number four persons.com. If you would like to have me come speak at your parish on this or many other topics, you can send me an email at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on faith. God bless and guide your efforts to bring the truth of the Catholic faith to the world. Thanks. Bye now. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.